Welcome People First Leaders. This is a special episode of the Leading People First podcast, where you get to listen in on the honest and uncomfortable conversations from our latest Leaders of Equity, Allyship, and Diversity event. If you are ready to take a stand and take action against hate, violence, inequity, and injustice in our society, you are not alone. The Leaders for Equity, Allyship, and Diversity host weekly events to allow leaders to come together, discuss, learn, share, and activate to make a difference in the world. Listen to the end to get more information on how you can join us at our next live event. In this episode, Michelle Olivier talks about the assumptions that underpin the foundation of organizational talent selection, resumes, and interviews. So get ready to come together and lead, and let's dive in. We are going to get started because I guarantee you're going to have questions to ask the saucy Miss Olivier. So if everyone will help me welcome Miss Michelle Olivier, I'll read a quick bio and then she's got like just a series of truth bombs and then we'll get back together. So um, Miss Michelle Olivier or Mrs is a 20 year plus recruitment veteran whose insights on industry trends appear regularly in leading publications like the New York Times with global expertise and a list of clients that includes big four, big tech and F50 companies. Michelle has recruited at all levels from entry retail through executive as a principal consultant with O&H Consulting. Michelle channels her experience into customized resume and career coaching support that helps clients soar above the crowd. So without further ado, I am handing over control to Miss Olivier. I tell you what, I'm going to have uh, Sarah be my reader of bio, like always. Um, it's always like this kind of slightly cringy moment. I think when you have to get introduced to something, we're like, oh, that's me on paper. Um, but hi, everybody. Thank you so much for having me. So obviously the topic tonight to talk about is... Um, the uh, interviews and resumes being the greatest tools of institutional discrimination. So I'm gonna start with just kind of like, what are we gonna talk about about that? First of all, we're gonna do a little bit of history, not to be terribly boring, but I think it's important to know how we got to where we are with these tools. Then we'll talk about what the problems are today and then recommendations on what to do instead of those things. And then I will answer hopefully all of your questions. Uh, probably not, though. Probably I will. I will do my best, and then there will, we will all leave with lots of questions. So, um, first of all, the history of um, all of the above. So, resumes were first. The first recorded resume uh, is Leonardo da Vinci in 1481. So, take for a, a beat and think what other part of any business we have that we do pretty much the same way since 1481, and I think that that kind of creates some idea of, of how bad this is. Um, in the 1930s, when we had the Great Depression in this country, um, and more and more uh, Blacks and women started trying to join the workforce, resumes, as we know them today, sort of became more and more prevalent. And they were used as a requirement to give men from educated and affluent backgrounds an advantage. So rather than just saying, we don't hire women, we don't hire this, that, the other, there was a new requirement and it was able to not just knock out um, minorities, but also to knock out um, people who were less well-educated from lower socioeconomic backgrounds. Then in the 1940s, um, 
they became more and more of the rage and we started seeing articles being written with the first resume advice um, that recommended women not bother to write a resume because it was a little pushy for abroad um, and that men should include um, a photo, their marital status, their age, social background, height, weight, on, all on their resumes. I think that's relevant because all of those things are great indicators of social class, race, and all the rest. And it tells you if those are the things that they were wanting to include at the beginning of resumes, it's pretty transparent that they were there to help screen out people that did not tick the boxes that they wanted. After that, there haven't really been that many changes in resumes since the 40s, other than things around technology. So like we email them now rather than handwrite them, but pretty much the same. Interviews on the flip side, 1921 invented by Thomas Edison to screen out people and test for uh, skills. Yeah, that was my face too, Yvonne. I didn't realize that Thomas Edison brought us that gem. Um, in 1970s, industrial psychologists designed the quote, better tool that is behavioral interview questions. And they are supposed to be 55% uh, predictive of future on the job uh, behavior. Whereas traditional interview questions and traditional interviews are only a 10% predictive indicator. So just again, think about what area of business would you be willing to hang your hat on that is only 10% effective? And yet that's what interviews are. In the 80s, then we decided to take it up to a new level of awful with stress interviews. These are those interviews designed to make you cry where they like ask you a whole bunch of series of aggressive questions or put you through like, you know, one interviewer after the other asking increasingly aggressive questions to see, quote, how you handle pressure. Um, the result was making literally people cry um, and doing a great job of bullying everybody involved. Um, and then finally, we have the the fresh hell that is video interviews that have started taking off in the 80s, and you've probably all seen are um, around even more now. So that's how we got here. That's where they came from. So now, what's the problem? So resumes are simply a summary, if you boil it down, to how well somebody has played a rigged game. We know that we have institutional discrimination in form of racism, in form of ageism, ableism, all the rest of it at every turn within our higher educational system, within corporate America, et cetera. A resume only tracks how successful you've been in those places. All it says is who gave you a shot before. It doesn't say anything about what you can do. It only says what you have done and where. So all we're measuring people on is how successful they've been, which means that we're always going to favor people for whom it is easier to play the game. Anytime we look at a resume, anytime we start with a resume, you're starting with the tool that measures how easy it is, that makes it easier for you to be successful. Again, if you are the right, you know, sexual orientation or color or all the rest of those things. So that's the first one. The second one is that both implicit and overt bias impact interviews to resumes. That is pretty obvious, right? That we know that um, ethnic sounding names get uh, treated differently by reviewers than uh, white sounding names. And there's been study after study demonstrating that definitely the same is true with interviews. 
Then the other thing to keep in mind is the socioeconomic differentiators. So resume writing services are a whammy. I know I, I have one. <laughs> and um, in general, a resume writing service is going to cost about $200 for a quality resume, sometimes more. Um, but people who get their resumes professionally written by a, a good quality resume service have a 300% improved success rate. So literally people who can afford my services a week after I give them their resume have 300% more more interviews than they did the week before. That's just a straight up socioeconomic differentiator in your system. If you can afford to pay somebody, if you have the education to be able to identify a good partner, you get a ridiculous advantage statistically. And then the same is true with interview preparation. So interview preparation, depending on your role, background, et cetera, is between about $150 to $600. Um, $600 obviously more for executive clients. But success rates for those, so my clients have an 85% success rate at interview, which again, that is so far outside of the norm that it's a clear indication that there is just a socioeconomic differentiation. If you can afford my services, you can get a job. If you can't afford my services, you lose. That's how the game is structured. Then after that, we have the idea of the name recognition from universities and employers that plays a huge thing, right? If you have gone to Harvard, you get treated differently than if you went to community college. If you work at Google, you get to write your check for the next technical role that you have. But those organizations are also biased. And we know that a huge part of that bias goes against things like historically black colleges and universities are way less revered within this kind of hierarchy that recruiters play than um, historically white colleges and universities. We know the same is true for um, historical uh, women colleges and also colleges and universities that cater to lower socioeconomic groups. So all of that is impacted through that name recognition. And then finally, Members of marginalized groups are less likely to have a professional network with the skills to help them. So when I graduated from my bougie university, my bougie mommy helped me write my first resume because she was director of HR for the city of Austin and she knew how to do that. That is not the experience of people who come from marginalized communities. They don't have that kind of network, which means that they don't have people that can turn around and help them to help mitigate that income and financial differentiator that we have with using the professional services. So there's no way that these tools, the, the premise of these tools is so deeply flawed um, and mired in with the discrimination that you can't use them and actually be, be doing a good job for DEI. Um, so what to do instead? Instead, we tend to say, right, I need a Java developer. Go find me someone who has five years of Java development experience. Well, why five years? You made that up. Five years is not a magical number, right? Four years and 364 days is not somehow magically less qualified than exactly five years. It's arbitrary. So instead, look at what are the measures 
or success in this role? What do they actually do if they are successful and then work backwards, right? We need a Java developer. What does that look like? Well, they need to be able to develop complex JavaScript within this kind of a time frame with this level of accuracy, and they need to be able to not piss off our clients when they do it. Great. Now you can measure for those skills exactly rather than arbitrary standards. And that's where stop caring about the indicators of skills and start caring about the skills. A degree is not a skill. A degree is a potential indicator of some skills or knowledge, but it is not a definitive standard. We all know people with degrees that you just think, how do you have a degree? You can barely tie your shoelaces. So none of those things, having worked for the preferred organization in your, in your sector, none of that is proof that this person has skills. They're just indications that they might. Quit focusing and valuing those things and instead focus on something that is actually measurable, like their skill level. There's a lot of technical solutions to this, which is really kind of the easiest way forward. Um, I've listed here, and like I said, I, I'll share the deck, um, a ton of companies that do a lot of work about creating tools that make this sort of thing easy for both soft and hard skill assessments. Um, and then for a lot of my organizations I work with, especially ones with a lower, smaller budget, we literally can do something as simple as a Google form. You can use those tools, a Google form or a Microsoft form to create things like a simple in, intake of name, contact details, and some basic skills questions to quantify whether or not they're ready for this role. And it can be as simple as that. Another option that's great is assessment centers. People hear that in this country and they think, oh, assessment centers. So you're going to give me some big tests. That is not what they are. They're um, experiential engagements that have a, um, a, a non-subjective measure for performance um, against soft skills and hard skills. Um, and then also hire a professional. As soon as you are throwing out everything you have ever known, it is time to hire somebody to guide you through those next steps. It's time to admit that this is somewhere that you don't know what you're doing and ask for help. So then what should you not do <laughs> instead of resumes and interviews? Please don't use personality testing. It is just as bad, if not worse. Um, it's mostly pseudoscience. There's almost none of it that is in any way credible. I refer to it as kind of the essential oils of recruitment. Um, it's mostly benign, but sometimes even not that, uh, but it's not a good indicator of anything. The same is true for general knowledge tests. They're particularly difficult for people who are neurodivergent, but they also have a huge bias in favor of native speakers of the language, people from specific socioeconomic and educational backgrounds, like you're not doing yourself any favor. Application forms may be the only thing worse than resumes. So that is not a help um, there. People don't, as it turns out, fit into little boxes. One-way interviews, so that's this new trend for like record your interview and send it to us and there's nobody actually engaging with you. Those are awful and make everybody feel bad um, and they don't actually fix any of your implicit bias issues. LinkedIn uh, is a great attempt, but it still has 
ultimately LinkedIn is doing nothing more really than a resume. It's still just cataloging how successful you've been at playing this game. So it's not doing anything specifically divergent in terms of looking at your skills. It's still just looking at what have you done previously. And then finally, a lot of organizations right now are um, do asking for sample works um, or projects that have usable IP or take. I have um, one candidate that told me he had for a role two separate assessments, one that took four and a half hours and one that took 10 all for the same role, that's that's pretty abusive. So try to, it, any assessment that you do for a candidate should not take more than an hour. It's not a reasonable thing to expect from somebody that is not being paid um, for more than that. And um, so that's it, that's, that's my pitch. That's what the basis questions. I'm sure you have none. I'm sure you're all like, wow, Michelle, that was so comprehensive. I have got nothing to, to say or add to that. But Oh, but wait, there are some questions in the chat. Okay. Not that it wasn't comprehensive. <laughs> I think the idea of essential oils is going to stick with us for some time. Oh my goodness. Where is that question? Yvonne, do you have it written down? Oh, Chris had it. It's a, Chris, it's a question from Chris. How do we get rid of or address the idea of a culture ad in an interview. I know myself, I've been um, asked that several times and I'm like, I don't, I'm not a culture fit. Anyway, there's no really good way to say it, you know? Yeah, um, so again, all of that permeates from this need to start with something other than what you actually need for the job. I hear over and over from hiring managers, even really well-intentioned ones. There are some things that are just innate and I need it from everybody. I need everybody to be a great communicator. I need everybody to be really flexible. And I'm like, do you? Why? I feel like you don't. Not everybody is those things. And that seems pretty arbitrary to me because if my job as an individual contributor is to sit quietly at my house and do an independent project and then give you the results. Why do you care how nicely I play with the other children? What does that have to do with the quality of work that I'm able to achieve for you? So I think that all of those kind of, what kind of culture match are you, all of that sort of thing, you need to take it back to what is actually measurable and important about that. So usually when we say culture match, what we mean is what I want to go have a beer with you. And as soon as you are in that space, you know who you want to have a beer with? People who look like, act like, and think like you. So that's really dangerous. It's a bad, it's a bad standard to use. Instead, have values that you as an organization are going to adhere to, explain, we have these values. Are those values that you're okay working in? Yes, great, great. And then leave it at that. Anytime you're talking about this culture matching thing, you're immediately opening up that you, you can't be doing DEI, DEI work at that point because you're matching an existingly imbalanced culture is what you have literally said with that. So yeah, but, Take it back to the skills, take it back to what is actually going to make somebody successful in this role. 
so as a job uh, interviewer, yeah. um, you, you have obviously answered that from the institutional standpoint. What about someone like me who's not a box fitter? Mm-hmm. And I get asked a question like that. What is the direction I should go when I get asked a question that is, I mean, legit unanswerable? I would say that's legit unanswerable. <laughs> that would be okay. how I'd answer that. I'm a big favor of, of radical honesty, right? If you are in an interview and they ask you something and you're like, I have no idea what in the heck you're trying to find out with that question, turn around and ask them, what do you want to know from that question? Because I cannot tell. And if they can't answer that, then that's a whole separate set of issues. Because really, if you, if they, so the exam, classic example for this, of this for me is tell me about yourself. Hate that stupid thing. It's not even a question. It's just a sentence. And it doesn't give you any context. It doesn't tell you anything that it means. And I know, I know people who have said that and they mean it's an icebreaker. They're just, you know, shooting the breeze before they get down to brass tacks. I know other people who say that and they mean, tell me about your employment history or why did you apply for this job? So my recommendation is always when you get asked something like that, that doesn't make sense. That's not a question. Turn around and ask them, how do you mean personally, professionally? What do you mean? And that's going to do a few things. It gives you a more genuine engagement with your interviewer because you take them off script. They can't just sit and read the form that HR gave them anymore. And suddenly you're having like an actual dialogue instead of this just being an interrogation. I love that. Also, uh, it changes the power dynamic, but that's that's another story. Um, but no, that's exactly right. Yeah, the it it breaks up that that interrogation-y kind of power dynamic that that is. The more questions you ask throughout the interview, the more balance you create the more conversational flow and actually both parties will wind up leaving with a better impression. Okay. Uh, Miss Stacy Casson is asking, are there times that just randomly picking somebody gets the same result as the interview process? Yep. That has been shown time and again, that you literally might as well just like throw them up in the air, snatch one out and go for it. Um, resumes in general have been found to be less than 10% effective in predicting any kind of future performance for staff because they don't tell you anything of use. The only thing they tell you is what, you know, badges they've collected along the way to where you are now. And you have no idea how many of those are merit-based and, and how many of those are privilege-based. That's interesting, considering how people kill themselves to have the perfect resume. Absolutely. Okay. Gloria, is your hand up or are you just super happy? Yeah, my hand is up and I'm talking to you from Australia. My camera is not up because I get a really bad echoing back and forward. So I'm going to ask the question, Michelle, what a great presentation and great to have you in this space because you recognize that resume interviews are actually a tool to discriminate. A lot of people in those spaces don't recognize that. So thank you. 
My question to you is that there are a lot of people that still see resumes as an important criteria in um, assessing someone's skills, experience in order to be considered for a position. So what about those people that will say, well, it's not fair if you haven't got the years of experience, well, you shouldn't really be applying for this job. Um, what narrative are you putting out there instead of resume, which we are so accustomed to because we're going to have that pushback yep. from people who will say that, well, I've had, you know, 10 years experience in this and I am rightfully the person that should be applying for this. And you're saying that we should be looking at skills. That's right. um, how do you... How do you balance that? Adults, the people who think we should be looking at the fact you have 10 years experience are wrong. That is a meaningless number. You have 10 years experience doing what, for whom, in what context? That work is not a one-to-one. -one. That manager you worked for is not a one-to-one. -one. That environment is not a one-to-one. -one. I have no idea, no idea. How well I work working for Sarah has no bearing on how well I work working for Yvonne. They're two different people. They would manage me differently. Now they're both pretty awesome people. So the odds are that I, they would both get good work from me, but they're completely different. And so there is no, the, I did, I've done this for 10 years. That means nothing to me, nothing. My mother has been cooking for 68 years. For God's sake, don't hire her to be a chef. She's a terrible cook. <laughs> so longevity in a position does not equate to quality or ability. And that is one of the things that we have to break down and change that just because you can show that somebody has paid you to do it before, doesn't mean that somebody should have paid you to do it again. So I, that it, that is what I say to that. The biggest pushback that I actually get once people kind of, assimilate that information is that first of all, it's hard to change a fundamental assumption about life and resumes for all of us. Like I just said, they've been here since the thirties and forties. We have all lived our entire life with this being the norm. Our parents lived their life with this was how you got jobs. This was how it worked. And so telling somebody that something that is that much a part of their culture is just fundamentally wrong and flawed. That's a, that's a big thing to ask somebody to just be like, oh, sure, that's a great plan. You're right. I should do that. Like th that's a big bombshell to drop on them. That's up there with pointing out to white people that if you're white and grew up in this country, you're racist and I'm, you should work on that. <laughs> but it doesn't make it not true. Um, and then at the same time, people get really afraid, especially the hiring managers of, well, what does this mean? Does this invalidate my experience? Does this invalidate my skills? I got to my position of authority using this bad system. What does that mean? It's the same kind of pushback you hear about white privilege, right? Like, oh, you know, white privilege. I worked hard to get where I am. Well, yeah, so what? That doesn't mean that there wasn't a rigged system. It just means that, you know, not being white was not one of the problems you had to deal with. So it's that same kind of pushback that you get just in a different context. And it's very interesting that 
it because it is so universal and everybody has resumes this is the kind of pushback that actually you get across the board from people from literally every background including the marginalized groups that you're looking to help because they still feel like and they worry that if resumes are an invalid tool if interviews are an invalid tool i got where i am off resumes and interviews does that invalidate what i've achieved and the answer is no it doesn't i mean even a bad system gets it right sometimes <laughs> oh wow sorry so what i'm so happy what right we now do instead i think that's that's the question what do we do instead in order to really sell this idea that resume is not the the thing to look for so that you know I, I talk to employer I'm in a situation where I can influence that conversation and I really need to know how then do we speak yeah how, how do we sell this idea of looking at skills instead of resume so the easiest sell to a company always is that um, the alternative tools tend to be about 30% cheaper and about 80 to 90% more effective and take about 40% less time. So that's a pretty clear sell. And what you do then is you say, look, you know, yeah, right now, look at how much you're spending on ATS on how much you're spending on storage for these resumes and documents, how much you're spending on, you know, sourcers to go and look for people and like take 10 seconds reading resumes badly and then recruiters to reread that and then interview them. Like, what if we took all of that away? And instead we had a clear ad that said, these are the skills that you need to be successful. If you're interested, great follow this link. And that link took you to an actual skills assessment that was impartial. You don't care if they have 20 years of experience or five, right? You care, are they good at this job? So having one of these portals makes that really easy. They go and they pass or they don't pass. And if they pass, the rest doesn't matter. And so then you have secondary things, right? Because there is more than like, nobody wants to work with a jerk. So you need to have a jerk screening out opportunity in here somewhere. And AI can't screen out jerks. So you have, that's where things like assessment centers come in. That's where you have opportunities to engage people. And so you are going to spend money because you're going to spend money on hiring somebody like me or you or whoever to come in and help guide you through these options and talk to you about what does that look like for your organization. But overall, organizations spend a lot less money. So I, one of my clients um, is a startup. They have five members of staff and they were looking to hire the next five. Um, and we found a completely resume-free system that took less than half the time um, that they had previously taken. And as one of the final steps in lieu of an interview, what they did was they played um, a game online. So like they all played like uh, a round of poker or spades or something like that, where they could literally talk. Because anytime you call something an interview, even if you say, 
Oh, and for your last day at round of this, we're going to, you're going to have a conversation with our founder. You can call it a conversation. It reads as an interview and it's going to be treated as an interview. So if you want it to actually feel to all parties like something different, you have to create a different context for that. And so doing things like having an activity that everybody is equally taking part in is a really good way to, to create that vibe. And there's a lot of tools that you can use that do all of those things. And that's what I would say to do instead. Um, and like I said, that organization, the um, we designed the first part was a literally a Google form that had a series of multiple choice questions that just auto screened out people. Um, then there was a short um, uh, work assignment that they had them do. Um, and then afterwards, they they played a game to decide if they were somebody that they could, you know, as close. I want to say, like, we need a different word than culture fit, but it was really a jerk test, right? <laughs> Are you going to be, like, it's okay to be, they needed somebody that they could work with and not, not dislike that engagement. And so, but that was what we did for them. And it was incredibly effective much more so than what they had done before. And it took so much less of their time and most of those resources were free. So there's very low cost options all the way up to super fancy, sparkly. You know, you can spend as much money as you want on this stuff, but you can also spend less. So it's just where, where you want to fall on all of those things. Okay, so I have a zillion questions in the chat. And uh, Miss Latanya has her hand up, so I'm going to do. Uh, let's let's go to Tom first and see if his question has been addressed. Uh, then we'll go to Prachi, who had some very specific questions, and then we're going to go back to Miss Latanya. And then I will continue to read in the chat because there's a lot of questions. So Tom, had, she did address that to some extent. What do you What do you think? Do you have other questions? Well, I I think there's. The, the bias starts when they write the job description because you don't determine what the real criteria is until later on in the process after you've started to see candidates and that skews the whole system. That's right. And so that's where a good HR or good talent acquisition comes in. That's what those resources need to be redirected to. If they're not screening resumes anymore, they need a new job, right? And so that new job is guiding hiring managers to start with KPIs. What does success in this role look like? Okay, so if this is what you're measuring as success, there are some really clear skills that go into that. And anything that doesn't go into that is irrelevant to the discussion. We'll stop. And the conversations that we have had to with um, with clients and hiring managers, there's some pushback to that originally. Um, my experience is you get one or two hires this way into the organization, and there's such rock stars that it stops the pushback. Mm -hmm. Suddenly, you have managers coming to you being like, I want that. Get me another one of those people because holy cow. How did we find that? I heard that all they had to do was like show up to this assessment thing for an afternoon and like they got that. I'm in. So we found that the people who are hired through assessment center had about a 30% longer uh, tenure within the organization on average. Um, and it was an organization uh, and that's, that's huge in terms of an ROI perspective. 
Um, and then again, just like the man hours involved, so much lower. You can totally buy everybody a really bougie lunch in non-pandemic times and still come out way ahead. It's amazing what hiring managers can get on board with for a bougie lunch. Okay, we're going to go to Prachi. She has two questions that are somewhat separate. Uh, the first one is, how is EQ in the screen? I read that we should hire people on emotional quotient. How can we measure that? Um, so that's one of those current buzzwords um, that people are saying that doesn't actually mean anything at all. Um, emotional quotient is not something that's particularly quantifiable, nor is it something that is always necessary. And again, when you look at people, especially like neurodivergence, um, and when you look at a, a multicultural organization, things like emotional quotient become almost a meaningless thing because you're going to need to instead have communication uh, patterns and policies of mutual respect and support and that sort of thing for those people. So I would suggest that rather than looking at buzzwords like EQ, ask, what does that mean? What does that mean to you? What are you trying to hire? Well, I'm trying to hire somebody who has the ability to build rapport. Great. So hire that. I'm trying to hire somebody who has the ability to empathize. Great. Hire that. Use when most of the time, I agree, Tom, EQ is largely the jerk factor, um, but it can mean a multitude of things to a multitude of people. Most of the time, I find when we use whatever the current industry buzzword is for things, what we're really saying is, I don't know how to describe this. I don't really know what I'm talking about right now. So I'm going to use an industry buzzword and hope nobody notices. Um, and I think like Yvonne and I were talking about that with DEI in general, right? They're like, I'm told I need a DEI. Are you a DEI? Great, I will hire you. And they have no idea what those words mean and what they look like or feel like or smell like in an organization. And it's the same thing with things like EQ. Awesome. Uh, Prachi's second question, uh, doesn't this radical straightness uh, also might also be an indicator of privilege, much like unpaid internships? Prachi, can you um, clarify that a little bit? Yeah, uh, thank you so much. Uh, so a few uh, weeks ago, I was having this conversation about unpaid internships and how they are an abusive thing by, you know, uh, corporate about uh, on students and skills, because you get to use the skills and then you decide to not pay for them. But at the same time, when the whole industry is working on the basis, whether you have a experience and whether you have an internship at XYZ place, isn't this uh, whole unpaid internship thing an act of privilege? Because if I have to support my family, I need funds. I might not be in able, you know, position to um, choose unpaid internship, like paid internship. And like if they have some selection criteria or uh, something, I will choose to have paid internship in an unknown organization rather than having an unpaid internship in a known organization. So that's an act of privilege. So isn't that radical straightness also the same thing? Because if I can afford to argue with the hiring manager or talent acquisition, I obviously I am, it's a 50-50 it's a chance, right? Like they can hear out and, uh, you know, okay, yeah, that's a great question. Okay, yes, 
okay, you are awesome. Or, okay, that's a great question. Please get out. It's it's equal thing, right? So I feel that. What about that? But I guess what I, my response, I agree with you that there is a perception of privilege that, but you can also look at it as self-empowerment. Ultimately, who you are is going to be what is going to be who you are when you get there. So if you get this job by answering questions in a disingenuous way, or by adjusting your answers or what have you based on what you think they want to hear, you are not going to be as successful in the role. I also agree that it is absolutely a privilege thing, that there are a lot of people who have to play the game and hope for the best because they need to eat and they need to have a roof over their head and they need their kids to eat. And I am not casting any aspersions on them. They are not the problem. Job seekers are not the problem. The companies are the ones who have the power and they're the ones that need to change this. But if you ask me the best way to answer a question, my answer is that in general, because you, you don't have a crystal ball and you don't know what they're thinking, the best way to answer the question is to get sufficient clarification that you know what they're really trying to answer, ask you and then answer that as honestly as possible. Thank you so much. That answers the question. Thank you. Latanya, it's all yours, lady. Hey, I know y'all are wondering what's going on. My sister's over here, so we're kind of kind of going back and forth. <laughs> so I have a couple of questions. Number one, what are your thoughts right now on companies that have taken on the DEI anti-racist stance in terms of their hiring practices? Uh, and how do you think that impacts what is happening now with people who are submitting resumes for different jobs? And I think the other question tagged on to that is what advice would you have for people who are a little bit older and seasoned in terms of their level of experience who are trying to get back into spaces of work uh, in terms of developing their resume to hit those targets and those ATSs? Okay, thanks. great questions. Also, I just have to side note, my mom's name is LaTanya. So obviously you're my favorite person here. Um, so Excuse me. <laughs> Sorry, Sarah, but LaTanya wins. I mean, she's uh, my favorite too. <laughs> um, so those are really great questions. My first answer is there's a lot of virtual sig virtue signaling from employers about we're really dedicated to DEI. And my answer to them is if you are using resumes, you're lying to yourself or others. Your choice. It is a, there is no way that this tool can be seen as anything other than perpetuating institutionalized racism and discriminatory practices. All it does is measure how well you have been able to succeed in an incredibly rigged system, that's it. And so if you as a company are really dedicated to DEI, then step one has to be hire Yvonne, and then step two has to be stop using resumes. As long as you are using resumes and interviews as to how you decide who gets jobs within your organization, you A, are continuing to discriminate and perpetuate the things you purport to be against, and B, you are never going to get an actually diverse group of people within your organization because you're using tools that were specifically designed to be extremely exclusionary, and they're great at it. 
they've been doing a great job of keeping women and people of color and people who are not like the absolute norm out of the corporate world for since the 1930s. So there is like, that would be my answer on that one. The answer to the older folks trying to re-enter the workplace, how do I, we're stuck with resumes, how do I work a resume in that situation? My answer is that ageism absolutely exists and it's awful and that you can't stop that. But what you can do is address things like um, what people fear with ageism. What people fear with ageism is that perception that older people are out of touch, are unaware, have antiquated ideas and are not technologically astute. So don't have those things be true in your application. Make sure that your resume is not just of a good quality, but has a modern look and feel to it. Make sure that your LinkedIn looks like somebody who knows how to work LinkedIn and that you have that on your resume on the link and that you're doing all of the things that signal somebody who is in touch with current processes and systems and, and is, you know, technically au fait, et cetera. Um, and that would be my best recommendation there. And then also shave off the early years on your resume. You don't have to show everything, right? Like if you've been in the business for 40 years after 20, you're an expert. That first 20, let it go. Okay. I'm going to combine a couple here because we're coming up on time a little bit. Uh, Lauren asked, um, so if all, if all of our typical stuff isn't really useful, what are the technological solutions or other means about how we actually go about selecting folks after posting that job that's asking for what we really want? And then Chris, I'm going to add Chris's on to that. He's asking about folks that maybe just are, have a disability or a differently, a different uh, like neurodivergent, um, how are they supposed to even be able to apply for jobs? Can that, and so I'm combining them as in, can technology address that? So that is a great question. Um, and my short answer is yes, it can. Um, so I will tell you that one of the companies that was on the list I gave is called Vervo. They have um, a really great product offering, except, um, they don't currently have a way to adjust it for people with learning difficulties or neurodivergence. Um, and so they were actually demoing it for me and a couple of colleagues the other day. And we asked those questions and they're like, oh yeah, we should do that. Um, so <laughs> the good news is I have now had messages back from the founder of Vervo that that is what they are now like dropped everything working on that exact issue right now. I would also say that things like assessment centers are much more flexible for those because they're not technologically bound. Um, with regards to how do we actually handle this and how do we apply for them, um, like I said, it, it depends on your, the specifics of your company and your role. One of the challenges of this kind of brave new world that we're talking about is that there's not going to be a one size fits all for every single organization. It's going to take a little bit more creativity. It's going to take a little bit more engagement. But then when was the last time something worth doing didn't take those things? Um, and so again, my hope is that going forward, we will stop using uh, resumes and instead 
the recruiters will continue to have jobs, but their new jobs will be answering that question. What do we need to do for this role within our organization to get a quality measure on who is and is not appropriate, um, who is and is not the best candidate? Um, and there are a whole list of ways and answers for that. And like I said, I that's literally what I do for a living. What's <laughs> that question for companies? So I'm delighted to answer more of it um, specifically for other folks. Okay. Um, as I put in the chat, some of these questions are specifically asking about your own job situation. Um, so I'm going to uh, refer you to Michelle offline because uh, yep. that's literally what she does for a living. Um, and I think that's the best venue for that. Um, Everybody feel free to link in with me, send me questions. I will look at resumes. I will give you um, notes on resumes. I don't mind answering questions about interviews. Great. Like I said, hate the system, hate the game, love the players though. So I'm happy to help. Awesome. Okay. So one last question, would you say legal, the legal department or legal advisors um, are the ones that keep the present system to defend their system against any claims of bias? Um, I hate to see selection based on the who you know principle. Um, I think that I think that everybody is implicit in reinforcing the system, including legal. But I think most of it comes actually from HR and recruitment. That they, I find that HR does a lot about reinforcing their own right to exist, rather than actually doing things that make the company work better for their employees. And recruiters are absolutely the worst at that. Recruiters are salespeople. They get treated that way, both internal recruiters and external recruiters. And the problem with a group of salespeople is salespeople are only interested in chasing money. They're not here to be nice. They're not here to be kind. They're not here to be part of a greater solution. They are here to make money and hit targets. And so as long as we keep treating recruiters that way, that's what we're going to keep getting from them. That's why you get ghosted because you're no longer a thing that's going to make the money. So they quit caring about you. Um, and so I think that um, legal is complicit, as is C-suite, as are hiring managers, as is everybody. But I think that the bulk of the problem comes from HR and recruitment, because rightfully, every organization looks to those two departments to help them set the standards for this. And so they should be the ones standing up and screaming at full voice, we have to stop doing this, this is racist and wrong. And here's a thing that we should be doing instead. And when they do not do that, they are the biggest problem because legal is just CYA, right? They're just trying to keep everybody out of court um, and they don't have enough knowledge to know what other options are out there because this is not their wheelhouse. That's our job as recruiters. That's our job as HR. And when we don't do that, we are the ones that are the real problem. Okay, so looking at the ginormo volume of comments here. I think it might uh, behoove us to perhaps ask Michelle to come back um, sort of early fall time um, because another, another part of this that I think we should definitely get into is hiring recruitment plus DEI plus employee engagement plus culture. This is a holistic system and I would love to have a discussion about that. Um, so, um, I'm going to quickly, <laughs> thank you, Ying. 
Um, I'm going to quickly ask um, Michelle to tell the tomahawk story, and then I'm going to announce what's coming. Okay. Um, so my mother is uh, is an HR person for many years. Um, like I said earlier, she was director of HR for the city of Austin when I graduated from college. And she is a full blood Comanche. And um, she's five foot one and blonde with blue eyes and named Latanya. Um, so nobody ever saw Comanche coming, right? Like most people assume that like they see her name, they assume she's black. Um, and then they see her walk in and they're like, oh, look, a little Swedish person or something, right? Like historically, because she's blonde with blue eyes. And so we get a lot of pushback when my mom's like, no, actually I'm Comanche. And they're like, I feel like you can't be. And she like explains historically how all this comes to be, blah, 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 blah. And so she had an employee who she had to explain this to multiple times. And they finally were like, we get it. You're Comanche I'm on board. I'm going to be supportive of your culture. And so they went on vacation somewhere with their family. And when they came back, they brought my mother um, a uh, ceremonial tomahawk from some roadside stand place somewhere um, that had a flint head and like weird like white fur wrapped around the handle and like these stones and like it was they gave it to her and like they were so excited they were like look look at me celebrating your commanchiness and she was just like I is this this is not this is not a joke this is real okay and she was just kind of gobsmacked and 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 tried to to talk to them about it, but then eventually gave up. But she did keep the tomahawk, and for years, it lived on her desk. Um, and even when like she would move company, she would take the tomahawk with her, and she would use the story of this person who like really did not understand cultural appropriation at a fundamental level to give an actual Comanche woman something that was neither Comanche nor authentic at all for her culture. Um, and, and so that, that's the Tomahawk story. Sarah thought it was amazing. I, I think I cried laughing because what, what did they call her? They called her the what woman? The what woman? Uh, the, oh God, the Tomahawk woman? No, uh, they said they called her the hatchet woman. Oh, they called her the hatchet woman. Yes. They thought that was hilarious that she's the hatchet woman because she was VP of HR. And so they're like, you're the hatchet woman. It's a Tomahawk. Ah, ah, ah. Get it. Get it. She was like, oh, inappropriate. And I felt like I needed to hand that pain over to all 20 of you because wow. Um, Next week, I'm going to give tiny um, Japanese paper umbrellas to my Japanese friends. No, just kidding. I'm not doing that. Uh, Okay, loves. Uh, Next week, we are having a pretty accomplished trainer come in. He uh, works with Workforce Insights, and he's going to talk about how to change training so that it reflects DEI initiatives within the company. And then um, I will be announcing our pretty amazing Pride lineup, um, which we are using to highlight folks that live kind of outside the HBO Fire Island mainstream of gay life. Um, So we have some pretty amazing speakers, including a New York Times bestselling author. So I am super excited uh, for that. And I hope to see you all next week. Thank you so much for coming and we will see you next week. And definitely I'm saving the chat. So if you need all those LinkedIn people, just message me and I got you. 
Thank you again for tuning into this special episode on the Leading People First podcast. We hope you can join us next time live as we come together to learn, activate, and empower to make a difference in the world. Again, we meet every Thursday at 7.30 p.m. Eastern, 4.30 p.m. Pacific. You can find the group and next event on LinkedIn. If you'd like more information, feel free to reach out to me directly. All of the group information, as well as my own, is in the show notes. Don't forget to click that subscribe button to hear more of our conversations moving forward and share this episode. We're so excited that you've joined us in this movement. Let's go out into the world and lead together. Stay awesome.